If you've been tracking with us for the last few weeks, you know that we're in the midst of a series that we're simply calling Relationships, What's Your Status? And regardless of what your relationship status is, whether you like it or not, you have one, right? And we've taken to discussing various aspects of our relationship status because those relationships are important to God. And the things that are important to God, we want to spend time discussing and working through here as a community of faith. We spent time talking, this series is designed to talk to married folks, husbands, wives, singles, parents, kids, friends, and much more. If you ever wonder why we're focusing so much of our time and energy this summer on relationships, it's because who we are and who we will be are profoundly shaped by our relationships. Who we are and who we will be are profoundly shaped by our relationships. I've even gone as far to say is that your family of origin, the family that you are born into, has a deep and lasting impact on the trajectory of your life, who you will be and how you will relate to the world around you. And everybody who comes in contact with you will be shaped by who you are and who you are becoming. And it's because of that reason that we take time and we talk about relationships. God gives us in Scripture the greatest commandment, which is to love God and to love other people. And what we've said week after week is that half of what we're supposed to do on this earth, half of who we're supposed to be, half of our purpose on this earth, deals with relating well to other people. And when we consider that to get relationships wrong is to get a lot wrong in this life. And for that reason, we want to spend a lot of time talking about that. We've said also that this isn't, this isn't ammunition to help you work on somebody else. Everything that we've been saying in these relationship series is geared to help you work on you, to help you work on you. And so far, we've spent a couple of weeks talking to our single folks about living the good life as a Christian single. We've talked about dating. A lot, we've spent a couple of weeks talking to married folks, specifically one week to women and specifically one week to men. And last week, we even covered the very difficult subject of divorce. And we spent some time unpacking that from the vantage point of Scripture. And this week... Uh, specifically because of our child dedication weekend, we're going to spend some time talking about the all-important subject of parenting. I've simply called this talk this morning, Distinguishing Marks of Godly Parents. Distinguishing Marks of Godly Parents. And this particular child dedication weekend, sometimes we can mistakenly consider that the children are at the center of this. Well, guess what? The children that are being dedicated today, all under one, they could care less about what we're doing today, realistically speaking. They're probably napping through my sermon, which I won't take personally. They're probably trying to grab at some snacks. They have no idea what's going on today. Child dedication weekend is for the parents of those children, particularly we're trying to get these parents to understand what God expects from them as parents, and we'll spend some time unpacking that today. Since this subject is so vast, I don't really have the time to unpack all of the, all that there is to talk about, about being a godly parent, so I want to start this morning with some basic assumptions. I want to lay a basic foundation before I get into our test, text today, and four basic assumptions that I want to lay out as it relates to uh, the distinguishing marks of a godly parent. And the first uh, basic assumption is that there are right ways and wrong ways to raise children. There are right ways and there are wrong ways to raise children. 
I know you'll hear people say, listen, we're all different. All of our children are different. We all have different backgrounds, and that is true. There are lots of different ways to raise children, but I would submit to you today that according to Scripture, there are right ways to do it, and there are wrong ways to do it. Anything that you can do well, you can do poorly. Anything that you can do correctly, you can do incorrectly. And for that reason, we say that there's a right and wrong way to raise children. I also say as a basic assumption as we proceed this morning that I think if you want to dedicate your child to to the Lord, you must first dedicate yourself. You must first dedicate yourself. And many of us, this disqualifies us because we want our children to be raised right. We want our children to listen to God's word and be good kids, mostly for selfish reasons, right? Mostly because it makes our job easier. But many of us won't endeavor to truly dedicate our children to the Lord because we know that it means that we must first take his truth and take his principles and adhere to them. And therefore, we sort of, sort of ease out the back door of this because we realize that in order to dedicate our children to the Lord, we must first dedicate ourselves. The third basic assumption is that parenting is a matter of stewardship. Stewardship. I used to think being a good steward meant taking care of my stuff well, being responsible with my stuff. But if you look up that word stewardship, you'll find that being a good steward means that you're taking care of and you're you're appropriating something that doesn't belong to you, something that belongs to someone else. And when we look at the beautiful and the wonderful gift that children are, we realize that children are a gift from God to us. And that God basically loans us these children. He puts them into our care to care for them, to raise them right. And I don't know about you, but I'm way more careful with somebody else's stuff than I am with mine. I might throw my stuff across the room. I might not clean it for a while. I might not tend to it. But when I'm in possession of somebody else's stuff, I'm just a little more careful with it. And depending on how valuable it is, and depending on who, the per- who this belongs to, I'm really careful with it. You understand? So I want to present to you and submit to you, some of you for the first time, you're hearing this for the first time, that your children aren't yours. Scriptures tell us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Those kids, they're not yours. They're on loan to you to steward them and to raise them right. So your kids are not your own. Fourth and very significant basic assumption before we begin this morning is that you can do all the right things and your child can still go off the rails. You can do all the right things. You can read all the books. You can give them the right snacks. You can even raise them strictly in the way of the Lord and they can still go off the rails. Take it from me. I'm a preacher's kid and I grew up with a lot of other preacher's kids. You can do all the right stuff and your kids can still go off the rails. And I think that should be incredibly freeing to many of us this morning because our job is to raise them right, and when they get older, they can make their own decisions. In this whole scenario of raising children, there is a huge variable, and that variable is the choices that the children decide to make. Much of that, once they get a certain age, is not up to us, but what is up to us is how we steward and how we raise them. You can do all the right things, and your children can still go off the rails. Those are our basic assumptions. Let's get into our text this morning. Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. There are Bibles on the edges of your rows. If you can follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can feel free to take that Bible as a gift from us to you. 
We'll also be projecting these words on the screens in front of us. Luke chapter 15, it's a familiar passage. Many of us have heard this passage before. It's the passage of the, um, the lost son, the parable of the lost son. Some of you have heard it as the parable of the prodigal son. And I always issue a warning when I'm dealing with a familiar text, is, and that warning is, listen, don't unplug on me today. Sometimes when we approach a passage that we've heard a lot of times, sometimes we, we feel like we know all there is to know about it, and we can just maybe do a little texting and Facebooking instead of listening to the preacher this morning. I encourage you not to do that. I'm sure that you'll hear something today that you perhaps never heard, so don't check out on me this morning. We'll look at Luke chapter 15. We'll start at verse 11. Before I begin this morning, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful group of people that you've assembled here today. I thank you, Lord, especially for all those who've come in support of the parents that have decided, Lord, that they would raise their children according to your plan, according to your way, according to your precepts and standards, Lord. And I just pray that what, was, what is said here today, Lord, would change lives. I say, Lord, that what, was, what would be said here today, Lord, would be encouraging. I pray especially, Lord, that it would be challenging, Lord, that it would change our course. Lord, would you put power on these words that you've given me to speak this morning. May your truth and your light shine through. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, familiar passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 15, we'll start at verse 11. And what you should know is that if you read the first 10 verses of this particular passage, Jesus tells two other parables, and it's the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And for the sake of time, I'll just tell you that those two short parables are designed to illustrate the Father's great love for us. And this is the third in a series of parables that Jesus tells in order to drive that point home, that God really loves us, and to put this on display. I'll pick up at verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this young son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money had ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and a sandal for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. And I really, really love this passage. I've taught on it a number of times, but as I approached this passage this time, I saw it from a very different angle. 
I love the story that Jesus tells of what we can only assume to be a really good father raising two boys. And basically, as the, one of the sons gets older, he basically loses his mind. Loses his mind. Gets well beside himself and has the gumption, has the audacity to come to his father and request his inheritance. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard that you get your inheritance when your parents transition, right? But this young man had the gumption, had the audacity to come to his father and say, listen, I want my share, I want my cut right now. Some scholars suggest that in this uh, culture, it was the equivalent of saying, dad, I wish you were dead already. I wish you were dead already. Why don't you just speed this thing up? You're taking too long to die. Why don't we just expedite this thing and go to the, you know, the cash station and cut me, you know, cut me a check. Give me my cut here. And this would have been way out of line. This would have been way out of line. It's out of line today. It would have been especially out of line in the first century. And so Jesus is painting for us this picture of this good father with this son who's kind of lost his mind. I think it's also important for us to understand that these two characters that we'll look at today, uh, the father in the story, as well as the son who's lost his mind, represent basically two important characters in real life. The father represents God, our heavenly father, and the son represents, well, us, his, his wayward children, his children that have a tendency to go off the rails, as I mentioned earlier. And I think it's important to look at this story this morning as we consider child dedications, as we consider what it means to raise godly children and to be godly parents. I think it's important to look at it from this angle, and that angle is this. That it's easy to be a good parent when the child is a good child. It's easy to be on the cover of parenting magazines when you have perfect children. It's easy to be a good parent when your children are compliant when they're nice, when they're sweet, when they're cooperative. But many of us, perhaps all of us know, that it's hard to be a good parent when you got a knucklehead on your hands. Hard to be a good parent when the child is uncooperative, when the child is not nice, when the child is kicking against the system and demanding that he wish you were dead already. It's hard to be a good father in those instances. I think far too many of us look to the parents whose children are behaving well and we give them the medal. But I think, and I've found, as I'm a parent of three young boys myself, that I'm more interested in watching parents parent when their children go off the rails. I think that's a better test of good parenting, to see how parents react, how they respond, what comes out of the child, that whole process when things start to get a little bit crazy. I think God in his wisdom, particularly as, as we look at this passage today, shows us how God, the loving father, responds and reacts to his child when the kid has gone off the rails. And I would even go as far to say as even when this kid sort of reaches the end of his rope, we see what's been put in him, what he comes back to when he's going off the rails here. And we're going to spend our time unpacking that this morning. When we get to verse 17, we see a turning point in this story. This boy has gotten his money. Scriptures tell us he went to a far-off place, and he spent all of his money and all of his energy and all of his time kicking it with his good-time buddies. 
And the good time buddies are the people who are around when you've got lots of substance and when you've got lots of stuff and when the wine is flowing freely and the good times are rolling. Spent all of his money and all his time with his good time buddies, but he came to the end of his money. And therefore, he came to the end of his fun. And at the end of his money and at the end of his fun, a helpful sobriety kicks in. And verse 17 begins by saying, when he finally came to his senses. Another translation says, when he finally came to himself. And we're going to spend the most of our time this morning looking at what happens when this boy comes to himself. And the coming to himself is something that we all need to experience as a wayward son or daughter. It's something that we all need to hope and pray that if our children should choose to go this route, that we've deposited something in them that they can come back to. Many people will get to the end of their rope, come to the end of themselves, come to, as the scriptures describe, as their senses, and find that there's nothing there to turn around to and to turn around with. And I submit to you today that this story illustrates that there was something for this boy to turn around to. That when he came to his senses, he had to reckon with what had been deposited in him, and therefore he was able to make a good decision. Scriptures tell us in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, that if we chain up a child in the way that he or she should go, when they are old, they won't depart from it. And I think that that's one of the most misunderstood scriptures in all of the Bible. And we typically misunderstand that to mean that, listen, if you teach them right, if you show them right, if you're a good parent, if you hit all the metrics, then your children will never, ever stray. Now, you don't have to know three other people to realize that that's not true. But that's not the interpretation of that passage. What the interpretation of that passage is, if you teach your kids the right things, if you deposit within them the right stuff, they will always have that to reckon with should they want to reckon with it. They will always have that to come back to should they decide to come back to it. They'll always have it with them. And there was something within this young man, something that had been deposited, that when he came to the end of his self, came to the end of his rope. We stopped acting a fool. He had something to reckon with. And it's within that that we see the three distinguishing marks of a godly parent that I want to unpack today. The first thing that I see here is that godly parents teach them, their children that is, who they really are. Godly parents teach their children who they really are. And we've been using a word over the last couple, last year or so, we've been describing that as identity. What's your identity? When we talk about who you really are, we talk about who your identity is in Christ. And as most people, what's their identity? You ask them to tell you about their identity, they'll start telling you what they do. Well, I'm a banker. I'm a plumber. I'm a high school teacher. I'm a preacher. Because many of us believe that what we do is who we are. But I think that that's not necessarily the case. I think it's an aspect of who we are. But I think godly parents who understand this whole stewardship thing, understand who we belong to really in the grand scheme, and that is God, really work hard from the very beginning days of that child's life to teach their children who they really are. We've been defining identity identity as what did God have in mind? What did the architect of this whole thing, what did he have in mind when he, when he made you? What did he hope for when he made you? That's your identity. And I'm so glad that my identity, who God sees me to be, is not particularly what I'm doing at any given moment. 
I'm so thankful for that. And you should be too, because to tell the truth, sometimes we can be scoundrels. Sometimes we go off the rails. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we get beside ourselves like this young man in this story. And I'm so glad that God, when he looks at us, when he looks at who we really are, he doesn't necessarily focus in on what we're doing. How do we know that this father, that this young man knew his identity? Verse 17, when he finally came to his senses or when he came to himself, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. This boy, when he came to himself, he realized, he realized that he was a son. Looked around himself and realized that he was living well beneath, well below his sonship. He called into his memory the, 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 the access that he had to his father's stuff. He called into remembrance how his father treated him and regarded him as a son, maybe even called him son. And he realized when he looked around, he, looked, he realized, listen, I'm a mess. I'm, I'm a mess. This is, this is so far beneath how I should be living, so far beneath what my father would easily provide. He said, listen, my dad's servants, slaves, live better than this. I'm living well beneath my sonship here. And when he came to that realization, that's when he began to understand, that, listen, it's time to make a change here. It's time to go home. It's time to clean myself up. It's time to make some better choices. It's time to go and reconcile. You understand? understood who he was, and he came to that realization at the end of his rope. At the end of his rope. I think it's important for us to teach our children that they're not just our kid, that they're not just some kid, but that they're God's kid. That they're God's kid. We just spent some time in the book of Romans, and what we uncovered is that basically God doesn't say, hey, if you're good, you can be my son. If you behave, you can be my son. Basically, what God says is, because you're my son, this is how a son acts. Because you're my daughter, this is how a daughter acts. And this boy, when he came to himself, he realized that he was living beneath his sonship. He realized that his father loved him, that his father had given much of his resource to take care of him, and that he was just in a place that he had no business because he understood who he was. And when I look back on my upbringing, I look back on the time that I spent with my father and the, 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 the dailiness of my father pouring into me, pouring into me, teaching me who I was as a man, and not just as a man, but as a black man. And not just as a black man, but as a child of the king of kings. And it's so helped me in my adult life when I don't have to figure out who I am It so helped me in my adult life as I tried to build this church and build my family and to be a good husband, be a good Christian leader and person of influence. It so anchored me in the truth that I am a son of the King of Kings that I think it's so vitally important that we teach our children who they are. Who they are. Now, that supposes that you know who they are. It supposes that you know who you are. And many of us struggle with that, but that's a different sermon altogether. 
but godly parents teach their children who they are. And because of that, when this boy came to himself, when he came to his senses, he came to discover or he came to remember that he is a son and that he could go back to his father. He's a son and he could go back to his father. The second thing that I see in this passage that has you know, some significance for us here today is that godly parents teach them, their children that is, right from wrong. Teach children right from wrong. And this is a big one. And the buzzword that we typically use in this regard is the word discipline. Discipline. And some of you, depending on how you came up, when you think of discipline, you think about getting that belt and, you know, going into the woodshed. But I think discipline is more than that. Sometimes discipline is just kind of used as a negative word. But discipline is just basically discipling your child and helping them understand where the edges of life are, where the boundaries of life are, teaching them right from wrong. I didn't say teaching them right and wrong. You don't have to teach them wrong. You probably discovered that, that you don't have to teach your child to lie. You don't have to teach them that. You don't try to have to teach them to be deceitful and to cover up and to smack other children. You don't have to teach them that. They, they, comes, you know, they come out of the box that way. What we do have to teach them is the difference from right and wrong. And what it seems to me as I look at this passage is that this young man, when he came to himself, when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said this in verse 18, I will go home to my father. He's preparing his speech. He's preparing what he's going to say to his father when he sees him again. He says, when I go home to my father, I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He says, I have sinned against both heaven and you. It speaks to him understanding that what he'd done and how he'd been living was absolutely, positively, no questions asked, absolutely, absolutely wrong, absolutely inappropriate, absolutely unacceptable. He says, I have sinned against both heaven, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against my Father. That understanding of what he did wrong lets me know that he knew what right was. Well, you say, if he knew what right was, why didn't he just behave in the first place? Well, why didn't you just behave in the first place? All right, case closed. He was beside himself. He was acting a fool. He got full of himself. Regardless of that, we're focusing in on where he is now. He realizes that he sinned against God, and he realizes that he sinned against his father. I was reading something recently about, you know, the appropriate way to teach our children uh, to say they're sorry and to apologize. And what, you know, what I was saying before I read that article was, you know, Eli, tell your brother you're sorry. And he'd say, I'm sorry. Not very convincingly, by the way. I'm sorry, and I'd be satisfied with that. But what I realized is that, you know, he was just kind of going through the motions. Going through the motions. And one of the things this article pointed to was basically you know, have them say a little more. We need to understand that they know what they're sorry for. What are you sorry for, Eli? Half the time he say, I don't know. <laughs> no, try again. What are you sorry for? Well, I'm sorry for kicking Joseph, his older brother. I'm sorry for kicking Joseph down the stairs. Well, what are you going to do differently next time? Well, I'm not going to kick Joseph down the stairs. Now I understand 
that you know what you did wrong. Now I can start to believe that there's some contrition there, and that you at least understand that this action is off limits. And this young man here says, I have sinned against God, and I've sinned against you, Dad. This is what he prepared to say when he went home. He didn't get into the specifics of it. We've read the story. But he understands that he's lived and he's done wrong, which suggests to me that he understands what right is. When he came to himself, he was able to see that he was traveling wrong. Looked around at the circumstances of his life. And that loneliness, hanging out with the pigs in the slop, lusting after their food, right, which was disgusting for a devout Jew, he discovered that he was wrong. And doubtless he was playing out the conversation, the very disrespectful conversation that he had with his father. Doubtless he's playing that over and over and realizing what a jerk I was. What a fool I've been. What a fool I've been. And I think he was able to understand that he was wrong because somehow, planted deep in his heart, was the truth about what's right. What's the truth about what's right? And I think one of our greatest responsibilities, if not the greatest responsibility of Christian parents and parents in general, is to teach our children right from wrong, to walk them through the, 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 the facts of life so that they can make good decisions. To make good decisions. We looked often, as we deal with child dedications, at a passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'll read, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Verse 7, repeat them again and again to your children. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Listen, that's a lot of talking, a lot of explaining, a lot of teaching about these principles that God expects us to live our life by. I look back on my upbringing. My father just always had lessons from Scripture, lessons from life. He just would not shut up, would not stop teaching me, would not stop instructing me. And I'm very grateful for that because I grew up in a very rough part on the south side of Chicago. And when I reflect on my friends who weren't getting all of that instruction that I was just looking for a mute switch, you know, A lot of those guys didn't make it. A lot of those guys are dead or in prison. A lot of those guys, you know, if I go back to the block, they're in the same place they were when I left them. Therein lies the importance of raising these kids right. Repeat them again and again to your children. Write them on the doorpost of your house. Teach these kids. Teach them. Teach them. Teach them what? Well, teach them to be wise. We've defined wisdom over and over as skill in living. That's what I want to be. I want to be wise. I want to know how to live this life. I want God's wisdom to help me make good decisions. Teach them to be wise. And Proverbs tells us at the very beginning, the first chapter, that the beginning of wisdom is what? To fear the Lord. Not to be afraid that, you know, the Lord's going to smack you around, but to, to fear him, to respect him, to reverence him. To fear the Lord. The beginning of wisdom. And that wisdom comes from us. And sometimes, if we just want to keep it all the way real today, sometimes we're just too soft. You mess around and read the wrong book or read the wrong blog, and you become completely useless as a parent. 
And your whole job, your whole existence as a parent is, is to minimize pain and to make sure the kid always likes you and make sure the kid, is, all of his desires are met, that he never deals with the fallout or the consequences of his actions or her actions never come to bear in her life. That's not parenting. That's not parenting. Destroy that child. If none of the consequences of his or her actions, none of the negative decisions impacts them in a painful way, you're not helping that child. You're not teaching them what the Lord says. You're not teaching them about how life is supposed to live. You're not helping them. You're not helping them. You're not helping them because you're not depositing in them something that they can come back to. I said before, no matter how good of a parent you are, doesn't matter how good of a parent you are, that doesn't guarantee that your child won't lose his or her mind. Doesn't, doesn't guarantee it. So my focus shifts from making sure that my children never go off the rails to making sure that there's something there for them to come back to should they make that decision. God forbid. And the way we do that is we teach them to be wise, to fear the Lord, and to fear and respect us. To fear and respect us as their parents. Listen, your two-year-old can't really perceive God all that well, but you know who they see? They see you. So I've discovered that the way I teach my children at three and at two and at one to fear the Lord is to teach them to fear me. To teach them to fear me. And again, I'm not talking about they don't know if they're going to get smacked or get a hug when they come in for one. I'm not talking about that type of fear. I'm talking about reverence, respect. This is how we teach wisdom. This is how we teach the fear of the Lord. If you're afraid to discipline your children, your children won't respect you. And if they won't respect you, they won't respect anybody else. They won't respect anybody else. And if I don't teach my children to respect me just for the sake that that's what I'm supposed to do, I'm going to teach them to respect me because I'm going to be sending them out the door to a teacher one day. I'm going to be sending them out the door into a parent, to, 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 to society and shop owners and police officers who know how to take care of wayward children. I teach my children to be wise. I teach them to be wise by teaching them to fear the Lord. I teach them to fear the Lord first by teaching them to fear me. And all this teaching, friends, is not just talking. We parents, we like to talk. We like to talk. We might even get something whiteboard and write it down just so they can see it and read it. This is not just talking. This is showing. This is living this thing out. Godly parents Teach your, your children right from wrong. I could spend all day on that one, but I won't. Third and final one, godly parents show them, our children, unconditional love. Godly parents show their children unconditional love. Verse 20 says, so when he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servant, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Now this seems really odd. This kid basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money right now. 
He goes, he doesn't invest the money, he doesn't multiply, he doesn't earn more. He goes and blows it on riotous living, not righteous living, but riotous living. Root word, riot, crazy, out there, right? So the father doesn't have a speech prepared for him, he doesn't have the paddle prepared for him, he doesn't have a dungeon room for the lockless kid in. He's got a ring, he's got a robe, he's got a calf that presumably he's been fattening for this occasion unconditional love. The father, no doubt, was looking for his boy, expecting him. Might have gone out and just looked down the road to see if today would be the day that this boy is coming home. Unconditional love. And we're learning from the best parent of them all, friends. Father in this story represents our Heavenly Father. God our Father. We're learning from Him today. And there's a reason that God commits himself to love us, his children, his creation, unconditionally. There's a reason that God demands that we, as his creation, love others unconditionally. There is a reason that God demands that we love our children unconditionally. And I think it should be obvious to us why that is. Because we, as broken, fallen humanity, have a tendency, well, to mess up. To mess up. We have a tendency to mess up. We have a tendency to say the wrong things and to do the wrong things. We have a tendency to have a bad attitude sometimes, and for some of you, most times. We have a tendency to be rude and to be short and have a sense of entitlement We have a tendency to make it difficult for others to be in relationship with us. And were it not for God's commitment to his unconditional love for us, man, he would have dropped us a long, long time ago. And were it not for God's commandment for us to love each other unconditionally, well, we wouldn't be sitting here together. We'd be in our own little huddles doing our own little things because, well, we've written other people off. And if God didn't demand that we love our children unconditionally, he would not be equipping us for the reality that those little rascals can take you to the edge of your last nerve, as my mother used to say. Yeah, they're sweet and they're cute. They cry a lot, you know, the babies, they cry a lot. And then when they get around age two or three or two, they just become little terrors. And as you see, begin to see their personality, you begin to see the brokenness and the fallenness of humanity, which at the root of it, all is selfishness, a me-centeredness. And that's enough to drive a person wild. Not to mention if you have two or three of those little jokers running around. A natural response to a person doing you wrong, a natural response to people being irreverent or not responding to what they've been told. The natural response is to do this. Oh, I've had enough of this. Oh, I've had enough of this. But I've found that parents who get it, they really get it, are the parents who love their children unconditionally. And might I add, they show that love unconditionally. They show that love unconditionally. They show that love unconditionally, no matter what the circumstance is. And sometimes that unconditional love takes the form of a spanking. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes that unconditional love, I love you too much to let you get away with that. 
My father would say to me all the time, listen, listen, boy, you're at a stage in your life where I can't let you get away with nothing. That's what he'd say to me. The weird part is he'd say that my, he'd say that all my whole life. So apparently my whole life <laughs> was the stage in my life where he didn't allow me to get away with anything, with very few exceptions. But his point was, listen, son, I'm not loving you. I'm not loving you. And my father knew how to get you, too, man. I won't even go into all the ways that I was disciplined. And I was that type of kid. I needed that. But my father would always say to me, why'd you get in trouble at the end of it? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, why'd you get in trouble? And I would tell him, he said, that's right. And I can't have you doing that. Get over here. Give me a big hug. Take me get ice cream or something. But that love was in the form of discipline sometimes. Other times it was just in the form of encouragement, of him always letting me know, my mother always letting me know that they're in my corner, that they're for me, even when I messed up, even when I screwed up. They let me know that no matter what, they love me. They love me. And some of you didn't get that type of love. Some of you know in your mind that your parents loved you, they genuinely loved you, but you felt that there was an on-on-off switch. And they used that on-and-off switch to, to, to sort of keep you in check and to manipulate you and to show you that they were in control of the switches and you didn't experience unconditional love the way God designed it to be shown. And I'm telling you that godly parents, they leave that switch on for the whole life of that child. Teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, ripe old age, as long as they're living, they leave that switch on because that's how God regards us and that's how God knows that that's God, that's, he knows that that's what we need as children. He knows that's what our children need. So I can say a whole lot more about what godly parents do, but I think it really boils down to these three things. We teach them who they are in Christ. We show them that they're sons and that they're daughters of the king first. We proceed to teach them right from wrong, to discipline them, to love them unconditionally. And basically what I've asked each of these parents, um, basically I've asked, are, are you willing to do that? Some of them, after hearing what's required of them, might say, you know what, we'll wait until the next time to dedicate our child. As awkward as it may be, we already made a slide, so you might as well fall in line with this thing, right? But this is what we're asking these parents to do. We're not asking these children to do anything but grow and be healthy and, you know, be cute. But we're asking the parents if you're willing to love these kids unconditionally, teach them who they are in Christ, and to teach them right from wrong, among other things, if that's what you're willing to do, then I would love to dedicate these children to the Lord today. So if you're here today and you're dedicating a child, won't you quickly come up? Would you also quickly come up with anybody who's standing with you today? And by quickly, I mean quickly. <laughs>